Walking distance is supported by Gossamer Gear. Whether you're looking to break into backpacking or you're an experienced thru-hiker and want to upgrade your kit, Gossamer Gear has got you covered. Based out of Austin, Texas, Gossamer Gear has been supplying backpackers with high-quality, lightweight backpacking gear for 15 years, including their 17-ounce bomb-proof trekking pole tent called The One and their 60-liter Mariposa Pack. Under two pounds and loaded with pockets, it's strong enough to allow you to comfortably carry your load. And some good news for you as a listener of Walking Distance. You can score a 15% discount at gossamergear.com by using code WALKINGDISTANCE at checkout. Again, that's 15% off with code WALKINGDISTANCE, all one word, at gossamergear.com. Plans have this kind of magnetism to them. And uh, one thing that I try to encourage my students to practice is making different plans, practice changing plans. And so those plans are already like partially made and that makes them a little bit easier to, to switch from kind of the plan A to the plan B. Um, I always talk about it as the ideal and the real and, and recognizing that it's not always going to be what you were hoping. From the track, this is Walking Distance, a show for hikers, trekkers, trampers, and wanderers that proves any place worth seeing can be reached by walking there, and that it's even better when you carry all you need in a backpack. You may have heard the term summit fever, a kind of obsession with following through on plans that we're emotionally invested in, like reaching the summit of a mountain even when the signs are obvious that moving ahead would be reckless. Here in the front country, that might mean missing an opportunity or losing a client or looking bad in front of your boss. In the back country, sticking with plans no matter what can have devastating consequences. I'm Blissful Hiker, and today I've invited two experts to talk about risk-taking and safety while backpacking. Dr. Elizabeth Andre teaches outdoor education at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin, and she helps her students gain the technical, interpersonal, and teaching skills to become leaders in the outdoors. She's instructed whitewater canoeing, mountaineering, and backpacking, and joined Will Steger's 2007 dog sled expedition across the Canadian Arctic. She teaches a great course called Outdoor Fundamentals, Everything You Need to Know to Stay Safe. Staying safe while backpacking includes many facets to manage, including inclement weather, animal encounters, injuries. But what's really interesting to me is that there's a psychological element to managing risks. And it comes with its own cool theories like risk homeostasis and heuristic processing. While we feel like we'll make smart decisions based on the circumstances at hand and supported by our training, we're more often than not less in control than we think. Partly that's due to the fact that the natural world can't be controlled by our will. And even further, that the limbic system in our brains, the system that deals with emotion and memory, can take over in the outdoors. 
Yes, exactly. And it's funny because the Western society has a long history of thinking that rational thought is the ideal. Like, you know, all the way back to Plato, there was this idea that our emotions were these kind of wild horses and our logical rational self was this charioteer who was trying to keep the wild horses in check. Um, And a lot of times when we look at risk management models or take trainings, it will assume that we are this logical rational being who makes these decisions by weighing the actual odds of things. But really the way that we decide is, as you mentioned, with our emotions and, and our limbic system, which we don't even have conscious access to, will inform a lot of that for us. And the, the way that it makes those decisions is by kind of flipping through almost like a slideshow of all these different images from our past experiences that it feels might be relevant to the current moment. And then seeing how did we feel about those experiences? How did we feel during them and after them? And so like, for example, with people who are making the decision about whether or not to ski down some fresh snow in avalanche terrain, if they've never been caught in an avalanche before, but they've taken a bunch of avalanche trainings and they've read the forecast for the day and maybe they've even dug a snow pit to look at the layers. All of that information is in their kind of logical, rational, executive part of their brain. But the part of their brain that's actually going to decide for them is probably their limbic system, which is where they have all the great emotions stored from skiing down slopes in the past and feeling that rush and you know, being with friends and maybe you know being admired by people who are watching you <laughs> ski or you know, sharing your GoPro footage with people afterwards. And like all of those emotions are going to play into your decision decision-making when you're sitting at the top of that slope. And part of thinking about risk management is finding ways to activate the emotional part of your brain to encourage more safe behaviors. So, um, sometimes in different like climbing trainings or whitewater trainings, the instructors will find ways to simulate something bad happening, like simulating a fall or simulating getting stuck in a hydraulic on a river or something so that your kind of emotional part of your brain can understand what that's like and and can start to kind of balance out the message saying like, you know, just send it, just go for it, just do it with a little bit more caution to just give your executive part of your brain just a little bit of a, a fair shot of of kind of arguing with your emotional part of your brain there and uh, and hopefully making a better risk management decision. Talk about risk homeostasis. I love that term. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, so risk homeostasis, I, I love this theory, uh, partially because I see it everywhere. Now that I've become aware of it, I see it everywhere. And so the idea is that we all have a target level of risk that we would like to maintain. And at first blush, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Like, wouldn't we all want to be safe and as safe as possible? Why would we want to incur risk? But being safe has a cost. Our brains just kind of automatically adjust for us when we get some sort of safety uh, enhancement, like new safety equipment or new safety training. And then we start to act in slightly more risky ways. So like a really classic example of this in the backcountry would be if you have a communication device like a satellite phone or cell phone, sometimes it makes people take more risky decisions, um, do more risky actions than they would otherwise, because they feel, even though they're probably not consciously weighing this in their decision making, they just feel safer and they feel okay about doing these things because they have this feeling that, you know, someone will come and help them if they need it. But you can't always rely on 
help coming in the backcountry. Right. I mean, it's really important to take courses on like wilderness first aid and navigation courses and anything that's going to help you be safer and, of course, have the equipment. But it's almost like buyer beware in a, in a sense that you need to have the correct attitude along with this certification that, yes, you have it, but that doesn't necessarily completely protect you. Yes, it's so true. And I feel like with any sort of training like that or with any sort of safety equipment, like the best thing you could do would be to make your decisions as if you didn't have it. But obviously, that's a really difficult mental trick to do. And most of us can't do that. (laughs) But like, you know, I had some students who took a wilderness first responder medical course. And then one of them after the course said, well, this this is great. I feel like I can go and take bigger risks in the backcountry now because I know I would know how to handle it if I got injured. And I, I was thinking, no, that's exactly the wrong lesson to take away from doing the training. It could ironically make you less safe than if you're getting that overconfidence from the fact that you've you've learned some skills or have some safety equipment with you. I would say it was the most dangerous thing that happened to me in all of my well, all of my life, certainly all of my outdoor experiences. I developed HAPE on Aconcagua. And I had to be evacuated. And I remember I was so sad leaving, almost as if, you know, I had just a little more courage or a little more determination. I could have somehow, you know, willed myself out of the situation I was in. And it took me so long to accept the fact that I didn't have any control over this. This is a this is a life-threatening condition. And I needed to come down. And, you know, here I was maybe a year later on, you know, at sea level. And realizing this idea of having control is really just an illusion. So many of us uh, feel like we have control over things that we don't. This has been studied by psychologists, and they'll do this with experiments where they'll have people flip a coin, and then they'll ask them if they think that with additional practice, they would be able to control the outcome of the coin flip. And some crazy high number of people believe that with enough practice, they'd be able to start influencing the outcome of the coin flip. We just have this kind of desire to want to feel like we're in control and that we can influence our surroundings. And, you know, usually that's adaptive for us. It's good for us because if we felt like there was no point in trying to change things, you know, that wouldn't be great. And then also the desire for optimism also can be really great for us in daily life. If we didn't think things were going to turn out well, we wouldn't try. Like we wouldn't apply for a new job or we wouldn't ask some attractive person to go out for coffee. We, we think things are going to be good and we think that we can control things. In the backcountry, you know, the, the world, the, the natural features, the rivers, the, the weather, the mountains, they don't care about us and we can't control them. And things aren't necessarily going to go the way that we think that they are. And so recognizing that is, is part of having that humility that can help keep us safe in the outdoors. Next to risk homeostasis, I think my next favorite term is heuristics. I just love that term. It's like shortcuts that we make, mental shortcuts. Can you explain that? Yeah. So a heuristic, uh, as you said, is a shortcut to making a decision. And there's a bunch of them that we use all the time. And they're super important. We could not function in life without our ability to use them. And and part of the reason why we need to use them is because our, our mental capacities are actually pretty limited. Our ability to experience reality and to pay attention to what we're seeing is limited. We can pay attention to maybe between three and seven things. Most of us maybe an average of five things at any given time. And everything else, all the decision-making happens based on these rules of thumb or these heuristics. And so, for example, 
if there's something that a lot of other people are doing and they're seeming to have success with it, then that signals to us that it's probably a good thing to do. Or if it's something that we're familiar with or something that we've done before. And so we're just being consistent with something that has worked for us in the past. All these things are, are shortcuts to actually having to sit down and really think about and weigh the decision-making of each little choice that we make. The thing that's interesting with heuristics in the back country is that we're taking these rules, these patterns that we've learned that worked for us in the front country and into the back country where those guardrails and those safety systems don't exist anymore. And so, like for example, if you had a person on your trip who was an expert, but not necessarily an expert in backcountry things, your brain is still going to tell you that you should trust them. And when they say, like with confidence, I think it's this way, let's step off the trail and like bushwhack through this dense brush, <laughs> your, your brain is going to say, that's probably a good idea. They're an expert. I trust them. They seem like trustworthy. And so you know, recognizing that sometimes these kind of instincts that we have can get us in trouble. Um, it's an important aspect of, again, developing that humility in decision making in the backcountry. This past winter, two teams of Nepali climbers summited K2, and it was an incredible feat, of course. But at one point, they returned to one of their camps and they found that everything was gone. I mean, maybe it blew off the mountain or was under snow, but they were like ridiculously prepared. In fact, quoted in an article, there was a backup plan for a backup plan for a backup plan. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, granted, most of us don't need, <laughs> you know, three backup plans when we go out into um, into the wilderness or even just like on a long kind of evening snowy walk that I went on today. I mean, you still have to have some things with you, some simple things. And I mean, like one of the main ones is just tell someone where you're going, especially if you're going alone. Um, do you have like a, a list of maybe just some simple things we can do that can, you know, pretty much be like a backup plan? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is a great point. It's always important to think about what could, like, what would you want if something were to go wrong? What if everything weren't to go according to your plan? And this is one of those things that's actually really hard to stay motivated to do. And it's something that as we get more and more experience in the backcountry, we tend to get lazy at and not, not actually do. And to your question, I think having a little backpack that is almost always packed and just sits in the trunk of your car or next to the door if you're going to go out and hop on your bike that just has the things in it that you need. So a flashlight, a knife, a way to start fire, uh, a raincoat, maybe a little thermal blanket, a whistle, a mirror for signaling airplanes, any of those things are going to make it like turn from a kind of life and death situation to just kind of a uncomfortable and you know, maybe a night out that will make a good story later, but it won't be like the last bad decision that you make. So. Right, right. And when you're thinking about um, making a decision, sometimes it's good to think about what people will say about you if you made a dumb one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is one of my favorite methods for practicing negative thinking. And it seems funny to think about wanting to practice negative thinking because we're always told to, you know, think positively. But, you know, as I mentioned before, when people have this optimism kind of bias, they tend to not think about what could go wrong. And so a lot of times when I'm faced with some sort of decision, yeah, I, I've been spending the entire trip up until that point visualizing everything going super well. And so I have this mental model in my head that's almost like a movie playing in my mind of what is going to happen, but like what else might happen. 
And I do like to visualize the newspaper headlines or the news headlines if something were to go wrong. And I even like to visualize what my friends would say when they would be interviewed about my demise. And they, they would say things like, I'm, you know, I'm surprised that she was up on that ridge with a storm coming. She definitely understands lightning and the dangers. I don't know why she made that choice. And so then that helps me um, kind of back down from this goal that I had set that I, I was kind of like trudging towards without really considering alternatives. Right. It's like the power of negative thinking. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if there was one word that I would use to describe sort of a useful approach to being in the outdoors, it might be, well, maybe it's more of a phrase like be deliberate. So there, there's a phrase that I repeat in my head a lot, which is, always do everything right. And this was told to me actually by a, a woman who joined one of my dog sledding expeditions in the Arctic. And one morning as we were out on trail, we were planning on getting to a village that day. And so typically we spend a lot of time every morning melting snow to water to fill up all of our, our thermoses with hot water. And this particular morning, because we were going to be in town later, I said, well, I guess we don't need to spend all this time filling all these thermoses. And she looked at me and she's like, always do everything right. And I, I thought, yeah, that's right. Like we are still in the Arctic and it is still, you know, 50 below zero outside. And just because we're planning on being in a village tonight doesn't mean that we will be. So when I'm thinking about being lazy, I often will hear her voice in my head saying, always do everything right. And I don't think I've ever regretted doing everything right. But I have certainly had regrets when I cut corners. Dr. Elizabeth Andre, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Allison. It's been really fun. Dr. Elizabeth Andre is an associate professor of nature and culture at Northland College. She teaches future outdoor leaders to do everything right. What other words might be touchstones for you when you're backpacking in the wilderness? Humility comes to mind for me. The ability to assess our limits and abilities honestly and recognize that the outdoors doesn't really care about us. That may sound harsh, but when we adopt a more humble attitude, one that's more flexible, we actually open up the possibility that we'll enjoy the outdoors even more because we accept it as it is. I like to think of mountaineers who might go for it when the going's good, but then let go without emotion when it appears the mountain is telling them, today is not your day. Elizabeth touched on the concept of negative thinking, which feels so counter to how we approach backpacking or really any outdoor activity. But there is that old adage, plan for the best, but prepare for the worst, which inclines us to pack a few essentials when we head out, like a flashlight, our phone, another layer of clothes, maybe even a granola bar, and also to tell people where we're going. Coming up in a moment, we'll meet Molly Herber from Knowles, that's the National Outdoor Leadership School, who agrees that training is essential, but oftentimes safety in the backcountry comes down to attitude. It's really easy to focus like on these very tactical skills, like what to pack, what to do, how to read a map. But so much of it is your ability to problem solve and to react to adverse weather conditions, as an example, and, you know, your ability to smile when it starts raining for the fifth hour in a row. <laughs> I'm Blissful Hiker, and you're listening to Walking Distance from the Trek. 
Walking Distance is supported by John Reamer & Associates. On a backpack trip, you wouldn't think of heading out without a map, a compass, and a guidebook. Planning for a healthy financial future is much the same. It's a step-by-step process. And at John Reamer & Associates, you'll get personalized financial advice to help you reach your goals today and tomorrow. With the right financial advisor, life can be brilliant. Be inspired at johnreamer.com. A private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, located in Minnesota with over 30 years of experience. This is Walking Distance from the Trek. I'm Blissful Hiker. Molly Herber is the creative project manager at Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School based in Lander, Wyoming. Knowles is a global wilderness school that believes any one of us can be a leader and proves that by taking people from all walks of life on expeditions in the wild to learn specific skills related to that environment, but also to learn about teamwork and problem solving. They might be best known to backpackers for their wilderness medicine courses. I called up Molly to get some of her thoughts on basic safety issues while out on trail, starting with lions and tigers and bears. Where I start, and I think this applies to most creatures, is I am trying not to surprise an animal. I want them to know that I'm a human and that I am coming. So what this looks like is um, usually just making noise on the trail. A lot of the time, conversation with your group is enough. If you're by yourself, I might sing to myself or shout out every now and again, like, hey, bear, or hello, nature, um, things like that. And that just gives them a chance to know that like, oh, something's coming and to move away. Because most animals are really not interested in being close to people. And particularly with bears, they have personal space bubbles and you want to just give bears lots and lots of room. So if you do find yourself in an animal encounter, yeah, I think with a cougar and with bears, you do want to look bigger. You want to look like something they're not interested in messing with. So if you're in a group of people, you want to get everybody close together, make some noise, make yourself large, then there's various points of escalation. If I'm in an area where I'm concerned about large predators like that, typically I will carry bear spray. What's nice about bear spray is that it's very effective. It's essentially just powerful pepper spray. You don't have to have really good aim for it to work because it's not a precision tool. It's just spraying the area. So, you know, if you haven't been able to avoid an encounter, if you haven't been able to group up and um, encourage the animal to leave, then that's um, sort of your last tool in your toolkit. So the next subject is inclement weather. And of course, you can prepare by knowing what the weather is going to be. But this can be particularly concerning for through hikers who may not have access to a a weather forecast when they're going out, or really don't have the opportunity to like get off ridges, for instance, when lightning comes. Um, so I wonder if you could sort of speak to preparing yourself for the weather. You know, in terms of frequency, you're when you're through hiking, you are living in the weather all the time. And so you're going to always be managing that. And I think in a lot of places, sort of in your trip planning, you can think about if there are like predictable patterns of weather and avoiding those with the timing of your hikes. For example, in the in the West, there are afternoon thunderstorms that typically build up. So if you hike in the morning, you're less likely to encounter those. 
And if you find yourself in a situation, like you were saying, where you're on a high ridge, you're in the lightning storm, and it's not safe for you to get to a safer place, um, such as a lower elevation or things like that, then you just have to do your best to protect yourself. And so a lot of people will use the lightning position, which is essentially crouching low to the ground and squatting on your feet. You're basically trying to get low so that you're not one of the high objects that is attractive to lightning. And you're trying to minimize your contact with the ground. So it's really just through your boots, because actually where most lightning strikes happen isn't the direct strike from the sky to the object. It's actually through ground current. So that's the thinking is if you can minimize that contact, you're going to keep yourself safer. And then if you're in a group of people, uh, the idea is to spread out your group. So that way, if someone is for some reason struck by lightning, um, when it's safe to do so, then your group isn't affected and then they could help that person and provide first aid. What other kinds of weather should backpackers be prepared for? I mean, certainly rain, flash floods. One trend that we are seeing on Knowles expeditions is that weather is just not following some of the patterns that we're used to. So I think just being prepared for more types of weather is going to be helpful. And so we're seeing hotter stretches. So just being prepared to manage heat in places you might not expect, obviously rain, like you were saying, um, like really strong winds can really impact a hike. And so some of that is what you put in your backpack. Dressing in, in layers that you can adapt to a variety of situations is really important. Having the ability to protect yourself from the elements, so like thinking about what your shelter is going to be. Folks have lots of different preferences of tarps and bivy sacks and, and combining your shelter with um, where you're choosing to put your camp is really important as well. And so those are, yeah, those are just some of the pieces that come to mind for that. Molly is an instructor at Knowles, which has been working hard to manage social distancing and safety protocols during the pandemic. Fortunately for them, many of their expeditions last longer than quarantine, so their teams become like mini-pods after a few weeks. Every Knowles instructor has to be certified as a wilderness first responder. But for most of us, basic wilderness first aid is enough for assessing and treating the most likely injuries and illnesses. That's a really helpful first aid course because it is designed and adapted for managing injuries and illness in remote environments like people find themselves camping in. So just like having the ability to know what first aid looks like when you don't have the ability to call 911 did a lot to increase my confidence and sense of my ability to act in the event of emergency. And it also gave me some guidance for what to pack in my first aid kit and to make sure I knew how to use it. <laughs> um, it's uh, First aid kit's just extra weight if you don't know what items are in there and how to use them effectively. Right, right. And I mean, problems come up and you have to try to keep a level head. I mean, I think that that's something we can't necessarily practice at home so much that just kind of really slowing down and thinking through a situation. A lot of the time, the way you solve the problem is can be as important as the outcome, particularly in a group of people. If folks don't feel heard or if they feel that um, decision-making is risky or outside their skill set, 
that's really important to to listen to and to tune into. Um, on the flip side, if there is an atmosphere where folks feel comfortable expressing opinions, asking questions, stating when they're uncomfortable, that's what's going to make a group really successful and be able to a get the best ideas from the group and then find solutions that make sense for everybody. Um, and, and some very specific examples of that could be when you've, you know, you've been hiking for 10 hours in the rain. If you think you've gotten lost, figuring out what to do next is a very real problem. Do you turn around and go back? Can you turn around and go back? Do you stop and set up camp for the night? Do you try to keep going? Because you think if you just get over one more ridge, you're going to get there. That's very real when you sort of are just limited to the information that's on your map and your GPS and your group. Well, Molly Herber, this has been so great talking with you. Thanks so much for giving me the time. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Molly Herber works for Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School. I think back to taking one of their courses, and just like she describes, what stayed with me was not just the nuts and bolts, but an attitude to take with me when I backpack. One of the best is, if you're in trouble, remember the acronym STOP. Sit down, think, observe, and plan. Knowing that our emotions and habits and assumptions can get in the way, Just taking a second to sit down and go through those steps before doing anything can make a big difference and may even save your life. We've got heaps of information on safety at the trek, including what to pack in your first aid kit. I've posted links in the show notes. There's also a link to wilderness medicine classes at Knowles and Elizabeth Andre's great course, which I actually found at my public library. Original music was composed by Daniel Nass. And thanks again to today's title sponsor, Gossamer Gear, manufacturers of high-quality, lightweight backpacking gear and accessories. You can save 15% on your next order at gossamergear.com by using code WALKINGDISTANCE. That's all one word, WALKINGDISTANCE, at checkout. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you've been listening to Walking Distance from The Trek. Trek.